This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Our episode today is part two in our series on insurance issues and construction litigation. Our guest is David Suchar from the Maslin Law Firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For our listeners who may be interested in hearing part one of this series, please go to episode five of Construction Law Today, where you'll hear the first part of my discussion with Dave. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Let's learn a little about your extensive background in construction insurance issues in part one of our program. But let me ask you about some of the insurance matters you've been working on since we recorded part one. Uh, Sure, Buzz. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be here with you again. Uh, Since our last discussion about a year ago, I've done work on the Las Vegas Raiders Stadium project and uh, LaGuardia Airport reconstruction in New York City. And I've done recently some COVID-19 insurance uh, claim work as well. So matters all across the country. In our last episode, Dave, we were talking about basic principles of commercial general liability insurance and some of the overlap with CGL and other insurance policies. So I thought we might start today by talking about some of those other insurance products, and then we'll move into some of the recurring issues in construction insurance practice that you've seen in 2020. Uh, Sure, Buzz. So uh, builders' risk coverage and professional liability coverage are certainly two types of policies that are also very important to the construction industry. Well, let's start with the first one, Dave. What's builders' risk and how does it work? Builders' risk coverage is the type of first-party property coverage that ensures structures under construction. Uh, So you have property policies that insure property uh, when it it has already been built. First party coverage under builder's risk policies, it takes place during a specified time period. So during the time that a structure is under construction. And it also covers, doesn't it, Dave, um, the materials that have not yet been assembled but are located on site? That is correct. So you you have policy definitions that determine what items that are not uh, attached to the structure uh, may be covered as a result of being part of the construction process. What are some of the coverages under a builder's risk policy that our listeners might want to know about? So the, the main grant of coverage is for physical loss of or damage to property, what some might call busted stuff. 
Uh, so anything that is physically damaged on the project. You have a host of sublimited coverages, which are for a variety of different parts of a building. So different types of machinery, boilers, uh, and then you uh, almost always have endorsements that add coverage for business interruption, for delaying completion, uh, for very specific uh, types of additional coverages. One of the most interesting things that I've noticed in looking at builders' uh, risk uh, when an owner or contractor is procuring it is that sometimes it's an ISO policy and, and sometimes it's, I think, what they call a manuscript policy that is written by the carrier. Uh, why is that, Dave? And, and how does that affect what kind of coverage you get? That's absolutely right, Buzz. There is an ISO form for a builder's risk policy, but it is not used very much. Most insurance companies have their own proprietary version of a form. The way it impacts coverage is you actually have to look at and read the policy to figure out how any given loss uh, would apply under that policy. So CGL policies we talked about last episode, pretty standard forms. Builders risk policies, not so much standardness. So you have uh, a variety of different types of forms. You have to look at them each time. Of course, that raises the question, I think, in the practitioner's mind, just how much do these forms vary from one another? They, they vary a great deal. And, and so you, for example, the different rights that may be available to owners versus contractors, contractors versus subcontractors, each of these provisions is going to allow certain types of insurance under a policy to get coverage. Uh, but for example, you often see coverages like delaying completion coverage that only the owner gets access to. And that changes with different policies written by different insurers. One of the things, I guess, that I've learned over the years is that often you get what you pay for and that the premium gives you at least some indication of the quality of coverage. Has that been true in your experience? Absolutely true. And I, I have come across issues on huge uh, infrastructure projects where the party that is tasked with procuring insurance cheaps out on, on insurance coverage and you end up with a host of exclusions that make insurance coverage essentially illusory. Uh, insured versus insured exclusions, for example. And, and you, you don't want to have that happen if you care about insuring the property on a construction project. So one of the kinds of things that you're focusing on, Dave, as you're looking to um, work with a builder's risk policy? I want to know who is entitled to coverage under the policy. That's very important. I want to know how the sublimits come into play to cover any loss. So you, you typically have a project value limit for the entire policy. Say it's $100 million. But for the type of damage that you may encounter on a project, that may be sublimited to only $2 million in coverage. So part of what I'm worrying about when I look at a loss under a builder's risk policy is where is coverage most available for the type of loss that's just happened. Where do insurers and insureds then get into fights over these policies? Probably the biggest area of contention is the property damage area. We encounter a loss where things are broken. You often have a response from insurers that there's not enough property damage, not enough damage to the structure 
that there is a compensable loss, or at the very least that the loss is limited to the damage that can be seen. And so the, the big ticket construction disputes on builder's risk policies often are the extent of damage and how much builder's risk responds to the loss because there's some damage, as you know, that is difficult to see. Forces on an engineering project that get locked into a structure, but you can't see that damage. And so there are, there are often uh, disputes as between experts about how much damage there is to a project. That's interesting, Dave, because I've had some experience in these situations where there's an interplay between the CGL liability coverage and the builder's risk as to the type and nature of the alleged damage. Have you seen that kind of interplay? Yes, quite often. Uh, So you may have a CGL carrier on a loss that takes place during a project, and they will say they are excess to the builder's risk carrier uh, because the builder's risk carrier should really pay for the loss. And on the other side of the table, the builder's risk carrier will say, well, if there's any damage, then isn't this just third-party damage that the CGL insurer should cover? For example, if it's loss of use coverage, uh, loss of use to property that's not necessarily been damaged, shouldn't the CGL carrier pay for that damage? So there is often quite a deal of finger pointing that goes on as between builder's risk carriers and CGL carriers. A lot of it, it seems to me, comes down to the different perspectives between a third-party liability policy and a first-party property policy. Has that been your experience? Yes, that has been my experience. But you often have losses where there is overlap between those two things. So the first-party loss to one party on a large multi-party project Uh, is the the third party loss to another party. And so there's often quite a bit of confusion about which carrier covers uh, what really are the same losses on the same project uh, as between multiple parties that are involved in those projects. Let's shift gears, Dave, and let's talk about professional liability coverage. How does that coverage work? Who does it protect and why is it important? Sure, Buzz. So, Professional liability coverage is very important to the construction industry. I think increasingly important as you have larger design build projects, for example. So there are more and more industry participants that are getting the professional negligence type coverage that is provided by a professional liability policy. You were discussing almost exactly what I was thinking when I start looking at PL coverage in a given construction project. And that is the point that it's not just for architects and engineers anymore, is it? No. So larger, sophisticated contractors are are very frequently getting their own professional liability policies to back up what they are doing because they take on engineering assistance roles where they, they are the design build contractor for a project. And so it is becoming increasingly important for contractors to have both CGL and professional negligence, professional liability coverage. Let's talk a little bit about the so-called wasting limits or what I remember sometimes being referred to as a snow cone. What's that about? CGL policies, the defense is outside of limits. So you have an unlimited defense exposure. You can defend a case for years and spend millions of dollars on it. 
The contrary is true for professional liability policies, where once you start spending defense money, that erodes the limits of the policy. So you have different considerations in defending a design case than you might in a CGL liability case. How does that wasting limits aspect of the policy play out in the course of, for example, a mediation or a negotiation to try to resolve a dispute? I think it it makes it more likely that parties want to settle claims, in in part because they may have more money available early on to settle the claim, and that money goes away as you spend more money on defense. And so you wrap in the defense consideration when you are the party with insurance, and you may say to yourself, I'm more interested in an early resolution where we have more money to pay for the alleged loss And the longer this goes on, the less money we'll have. I'll tell you, David, my experience as a mediator, where a claim is substantially dependent on PL coverage, I find it remarkable how much more enthusiastic the parties are to settle a claim under a PL policy. Yeah, I I have seen that as well. As an insurer, obviously, they, they have to take it at, at face value, right? Are they going to spend the money now or spend the money later? But I think that's right, that PL policy with wasting limits, where you don't have an unlimited defense requirement for the insurer, I think it does make it, like you said, more likely that parties are willing to settle early on. Dave, can you give our listeners a little sense of what are some of the more common issues under professional liability policies that you're seeing uh, currently in your practice? Sure. So uh, which policy uh, a loss falls into? Uh, Notice issues are important with professional liability policies because they almost always are claims made policies and, and sometimes are claims reported policies as well. And so notice issues are important. Related claims Uh, So did uh, a claim take place during one policy period with one insurer or during a different policy period with a different insurer? Those Those are important and disputed issues. We'll be right back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. back with Construction Law Today. Today's episode is part two of our presentation concerning construction insurance. Our guest is David Suchar from the Maslin Law Firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dave, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about notice requirements under insurance policies. Now, it sounds pretty straightforward, but there are some issues here, aren't there? Yes, there are, Buzz. So, you you have the policy language and policies often have certain requirements for what notice policyholders have to give. But on occurrence policies like CGL policies, where there's no hard and fast rule about when a policyholder has to give notice, you have different state laws that impact whether an insured, a policyholder, has properly and timely given notice. 
Well, I guess I would say, Dave, my initial reaction, and I've heard a lot of younger lawyers say, what's the big deal here? So let me ask you, why does notice become an issue? So notice is a huge issue on claims reported policy. You don't make the notice uh, in the time the policy says, you are out of luck. On the occurrence policies, you have some states uh, that say that there is a, uh, it's a precedent to coverage. So a condition precedent is getting the notice right. So that's one side of the divide. The other is the insurer has to demonstrate prejudice, has to show that if it received late notice, that it was somehow prejudiced and would have done something differently if it received notice earlier on. Uh, so it's a very important, sometimes outcome determinative issue about whether notice was given timely and properly. So what are you telling insureds to try to steer clear of this issue? The important thing is to have some type of internal process. So people at your organization who can recognize when there is a claim made. And some of the most sophisticated uh, bigger companies, uh, they have claims meetings at the end of their policy periods with their, uh, their brokers, for example. They have close relationships with their insurance brokers. They have people internally who are trained to recognize when in fact they should be making either a preliminary notice of a claim or an actual notice of a claim to an insurer. But Dave, isn't there a flip side to that kind of concept, clients will tell you, insurers will tell you, I don't want to make a claim. The insurance company is going to raise my rates. I, I do hear that all the time. Uh, the problem is that we as, uh, as people cannot predict everything that's going to happen with a given claim. And so if, for example, you say, I'm only going to make notice to my CGL carrier, and not my PL carrier. We've had trouble with professional liability coverage and the hardening market there. Well, you may not realize that this eventually becomes a design allegation, and it really is a design problem and not a construction problem. And if you have, have not made notice under a policy, you, you may never be able to make that notice again. And so the, the safest reaction to a given claim is to make notice early and often to any conceivable carrier that might cover the loss. Let me ask you about the flip side of the notice issue, and that is getting carriers involved in cases before claims are filed. Have you seen that kind of situation where an insured says, I haven't heard from X or Y claimant, but here's what's up? And what kind of reaction do you get out of insurance companies in that situation? I think it depends on the relationship between the uh, policyholder and their insurer. You have these longer term relationships sometimes where the insurance company appreciates the ability to take part in and participate in a potential claim before it, it gets blown out of proportion. And so sometimes some insurance companies, I'm thinking of professional liability insurers, for example, will say, we want to work with you pre-claim, uh, maybe even hire an expert just to see if this actually is a problem and think about ways we can position it to get you out of the problem as quickly and safely as possible. Dave, let's turn to another subject and one that I want to spend a little bit of time on. You hear so much in the construction world about 
additional insured endorsements. Let's kind of start from the beginning. What's an additional insured and how does that work under the CGL policy? So additional insurance is part of what I, I think I read someone call the uh, OPI portion of the uh, construction industry, other people's insurance. Uh, it is the process by which upstream parties uh, require downstream parties and their insurance to cover losses. So the classic endorsement, additional insured endorsement on a CGL policy requires that the insurer cover any upstream party uh, that is required by written contract to be an additional insured. So the upstream parties, owners require contractors to get additional insurance for them. Contractors require subcontractors to get it and onward and onward, down and down. Now, some of the additional insurance endorsements have changed over the years and there've been a couple of important changes. Can you talk about that? Sure. So you go back to the 1980s and you had these broad form additional insurance forms, which covered a a pretty wide range of conduct as between the additional insured and the named insured. 2004 is probably the first line where you had a limiting of coverage uh, under the additional insured, the ISO additional insurance form. And now the latest version in 2013 has a host of restrictions that make it more difficult for additional insurance to get coverage. Of course, now it seems to me it's starting to creep into the area of state law with anti-indemnity provisions. Does that also come into play? It does. So ISO in their 2013 revision made sure that state laws could restrict with their anti-indemnity statutes, could restrict coverage for additional insurance. That was one of the main differences between the, the 2004 forms and the 2013 forms. Dave, could you suggest, is there a reference or someplace you go to try to sort out additional insured issues as you see them in your practice? Yeah, so I, I actually have on my desk here at the office the last two editions of the additional insured book. There are four books uh, written on this topic, and, and that, that book is a pretty common reference because there are a host of issues in play when it comes to additional insured provisions. You have the the ISO form, and then you have a variety of proprietary forms that insurers use, and these are some of the most litigated issues in all of the construction insurance practice. Dave, could you mention the publisher and the name of that book so our listeners have it? Malecki, if I'm not mistaken. My eyesight from across my office, I think, confirms that, that Malecki is the publisher of that additional insured book. Uh, so someone who is very interested in, in additional insurance and who has written about it over the years. Let me ask you about an example. Have you, have you seen a case recently where additional insured became an issue? Sure. So I was involved in the FIU for a couple of years representing what you might call a midstream party, contractor, construction party. And a very important issue in that case became whether the upstream parties could get additional insurance. I I had come up with a theory uh, about the contract language not being good enough 
to be required as written contract. Uh, that is the, the rule under the ISO additional insurance form. Folks ended up believing me, and the upstream parties did not get additional insured status, and that preserved the limits of coverage for parties like my own client. In our remaining time today, Dave, I'd like to go to that issue which has been in the news recently regarding coverages for claims arising out of the COVID virus. And I know that you and one of my heroes in the field of construction insurance, your mentor, Jim O'Connor, have written an article about it. So I'd like to talk about that. First, could you tell our listeners very generally uh, what the subject matter of the article is? And also, would you mention where it's going to appear in publication? Sure, Buzz. So yes, uh, Jim O'Connor and I, we wrote an article for the American College of Construction in the journal that they uh, put out. And it is about the threshold issue of direct physical loss or damage. And so that most commonly, as you may have seen in the news, that comes up in business interruption uh, policy forms. And the question really is, are coronavirus losses, uh, do they qualify as physical loss or damage to property triggering coverage under property policies? I've read some of the cases. My sense is that most courts are giving fairly short shrift to insured's claims, but give me a little sense of nationally what's going on. Well, that, that certainly was the case early on, Buzz, that the, the first series of cases out of the box, judges were dismissing the claims of parties uh, across a variety of different industries when they alleged property loss uh, or damage to property based on coronavirus. That has been changing, and there have been a series of cases both in Missouri and in North Carolina where courts have at least allowed to go forward claims based on loss or damage to property because of coronavirus exposure. Is your sense that over some period of time, there may be some liberalization of the interpretation of the um, damage to property provision? I think so. And, and I am working with uh, a few different uh, construction companies and other parties outside the construction industry. Now, you have some chance of recovering under these uh, business interruption policies and delay and completion uh, builder's risk policies as well. And if courts look to some of the prior about uh, parties who had damage to the goods that they sell uh, or their property that fits into a very similar type of category as coronavirus, I think you will see more courts that are buying into the idea that COVID and civil authority uh, shutting down of businesses, that those, those two things fit into a compensable type of loss under those policies. I had heard recently, Dave, a defense, and I don't know if you've seen this before, this may be a little unfair of a question, but some carriers taking the position that even to the extent there may be coverage, there's no damage if the business has been able to procure a PPP loan. Have you seen that up? I, I have discussed that issue with clients and think you don't want to get double recovery. I think that maybe there is an argument 
that if you otherwise compensated uh, for that type of loss, that you you are not entitled to a double recovery of insurance. Um, so I, I can see that that argument, and in some cases it probably works. Uh, but then again, there may be some separation as between the the loan and what that uh, pays for, and and then the other side of it, which is your other business interruption losses or the losses that come from delaying completion, for example, where the construction project uh, end date gets pushed out by months and months. So there may be some overlap there. I could, I could see some separation too. Dave, thanks so much for your thoughts and expertise today. We're going to be looking for that article, a very interesting topic. And I know that if you and Jim worked on it, it's probably first class work. So thanks again for being with us today. Thank you very much, Buzz. Great talking with you. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.